All right, how is everybody? It is August and it's time to go back to school, whatever that means and whatever that's going to look like this year. Uh, but we are getting toward the end of the summer. I hope you got to go to the lake. I hope you got to go to the beach. I hope you got to go to the mountains. Um, I know all of our vacation plans and most of our summer plans uh, changed or transitioned in some form or fashion. And uh, we just finished, if you're new, I met, I met some people, just encourage you guys, encourage you online, encourage you here. We've been having uh, many new guests visiting us on Thursday night uh, for the first time, moving here, starting school, starting jobs, so we're very, very encouraged about that. We just finished up a series called Identity. And here was the big idea, because I won't re rehash it all. It was this idea that God made you on purpose for a purpose. And man, is that encouraging to know, because what you want is you want every middle schooler to go to high school knowing, okay, I was made on purpose for a purpose. You want every high schooler going to college. You want every college student going into the world. You want to enter every phase of your life and ministry, every age and stage that you enter. You want to know those two realities. Listen, uh, God made me for a purpose. I was made on purpose for a purpose. I'm not an accident. I'm not a mistake. It's not nobody times nothing equals everything. And I am here, and I'm here for a reason. So that's an important series. I hope you'll go back to it. I hope you'll share that series. It's a foundational, formative, fundamental series for our church. Uh, and, and we did that, and, and now we're planning for the fall. I want to tell you that. Those online, those in this room, uh, we, we're going to make some big announcements. Uh, we got a, we got a members gathering coming up for our members on Monday, August 17th. We're going to make some big announcements there. Then we're going to share with everyone very soon where we're going but part of what I want to do is I want to help you know some of the framework and some of the filter under how we think. Because it's, it's kind of helpful to know, like, how you probably want to know this, or, you know, if you think about it long enough, you would want to know this. Like, how are the church leaders thinking about things? Like, what's the filter to think through all this stuff? I don't know, a global pandemic and the reopening of church buildings and the reopening of the economy and uh, safety versus freedom. And how do we think about all those things? Well, let me give you a filter. And I find this really helpful. I think, you could, I think this is um, going to be helpful for you, that we want to be Bible-saturated, historically rooted, and globally informed. And so that, in that order, that's how we'll think about things. So we're going to be a Bible-saturated church. And that means that hopefully our first reflex is always to ask, what does the Bible say about that, right? And, and actually, that's how, one of the ways you know you're growing as a Christian, because more often in your life, you're going to say things like, well, what does the Bible say about, I don't know, money, sex, dating, whatever it is. And you really want to know that. That's why the reformers, they're, they're guys a long time ago that began to help reform the church, um, they said sola scriptura. And that, that didn't mean only scripture, it meant scripture alone. What it meant was everybody has to have a highest authority, and our highest authority is going to be the Bible. So that, that's the first thing, and we'll talk more about that, but that, that is our conviction and where we go again and again. The second thing is we're going to be historically rooted, right? Because you make decisions in time and space. And so, well, let's talk about time. It's like, well, Here's the good news. Um, people have been through a lot more than we have, okay? Uh, I know we, we feel like we're unique. We feel like, oh, man, everything we're going through is so hard. It's like, well, imagine you were born in 1900. Because in 1913, World War I starts. 1918, Spanish still hits and 50 million people die. Well, once you get over that, it's 1929. It's just in time for the Great Depression, which lasts several years. And then we finally recover from that. Right before your 40th birthday, World War II happens. And so what's interesting is, we have 2,000 years of church history and of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of men and women. And men and women, just let's be honest, much godlier than us, much more thoughtful than us, who've thought about things way more than you've thought about them, have dealt with everything we're dealing with. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. So we're going to go, okay, what does the Bible say? How has the church understood the Bible? It's like, is this the first time the government's got involved and we're asking what to do? No. It's like, that's as old as First and Second Peter. 
That's a very old idea, so we're going to work through that. And then we're going to be globally informed. Why? Because we're time and we're in space. And there's only 331 million of us in America. It's a very small slice of the world's population. And as you begin to think about the Christian experience and how Christians all over the world are thinking and have thought about these things, right? Because right in America, we have what we call first world problems, right? Uh, I don't know your Wi-Fi passcode. Uh, the air conditioning's not working. Amazon doesn't have my size. Those are first world problems, okay? And so what, what I want to tell you is, is we're going to be making some convictional decisions, and that's always my promise. We, we make decisions out of conviction, not convenience or cultural opinion. And I'm really excited and, and, uh, about what we're going to be sharing with you. But, but here's my challenge for, for each of us as we go forward, because we're we going to have a lot to talk about in the next few weeks. So I hope you'll continue to tune in and, 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 and uh, show up. Um, here, here's our twofold challenge. Number one is for every person, when we, when we release our plan, I hope you'll have a plan. So when we release our plan of in-person services and how we're going to do things this fall, I hope you'll go, okay, well, that's the filter they went through. Now I'm going to have a plan in light of their plan. And I'm going to have a plan for my family. No matter what convictions I have, I'm going to figure out how to work this out. And then secondly, don't go against your own conscience. There is a lot of decisions that Christians are going to disagree with. And this is a very interesting thing. The Bible says never to go against your conscience. And you would go, well, why would it say that? You know, well, what if your conscience is too weak? It says never go against it. Why? Because you don't want to be the kind of person who goes against your conscience. Because you don't want to be the kind of person that teaches your conscience no is an okay word to hear. And so what, I, what I'm asking for is we're going to, and I'm excited about it, we're going to share our plan for the future. We're going to ask everybody to have a plan and to live according to their conscience. And as we've asked the whole time and as we've seen, we're going to ask everyone to continue to pursue and pray for the unity of our church. So with that said, let's pray. And then we've got a brand new series we're diving into. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for the men and women in this room and those listening online. Lord, I pray for the unity of our church, not uniformity, not where every person thinks the exact same. That's a cult. But for unity, where we believe the most, we believe the same things about the most important things. And therefore, in light of that, we can disagree without dividing. We can disagree without divorcing over an issue. Lord, help each person to have a plan that not much has changed, it looks like, this fall um, in, in regards to our nation and some things. And so we're going to have to have a plan of how we're going to engage the church, engage community, engage our family, engage discipleship, engage mission. Give us wisdom to make those decisions. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can swipe to or scroll to Malachi, or as the Italians like to call him, Malachi, okay? Um, Malachi is the last book of your Old Testament. So if you'll turn to, type to that, it's easy to find. If you can find the New Testament, turn left into Ma from Matthew into Malachi. And I want to tell you something. Like, I, you know, I try to be as open as I can up here, um, you know, with hundreds of my closest friends, um, is um, we normally are six to 12 months ahead. I'm, I'm just kind of OCD, okay? I, I like to be really ahead on what we're preaching on and where we're going and all these, you know, all this kind of stuff. And about three weeks ago, we changed what we were going to do today for today. Um, we, we had a series, and we've moved that series. This is in light of some of our plans and, and uh, what we're hoping for in the future. We moved that series out a little bit, and we're, we started a new series. And we said, why? Well, because Malachi is an interesting book, and we think it's time to be in the prophets. Like, you know, when, when, when COVID hit, uh, all the pa and I respect all the pastors, and I learned from all these pastors, and all these nationwide pastors said, it's time to return to the Psalms. You know, you go, well, why would you return to the Psalms? Well, because the Psalms speak for you, right? The Psalms, it's like, well, every emotion you've ever experienced is in the Psalms. Just go look there. So that would be why you'd go to the Psalms, and they're really, really helpful. Um, 
And I've, I've benefited from that, and I've been in those. Um, but I also think it's time for the prophets. Because the prophets were able to speak to unique times and places. They were able to both foretell and foretell. Foretell is here's the future. Foretell is here's what's wrong right now. And they were able to uniquely diagnose society and uniquely diagnose the sinful heart. And that's why they were basically all killed, okay? <laughs> if you know the story of the prophets, it's like Jesus actually shows up. This is interesting. Jesus shows up, and he's, this happens a couple times in the New Testament. He's talking to some guys, religious guys, and he basically says, look, here's what you guys do. You kill the prophets, then about 300 years later, you praise them. Because you're like, they were right. And you just do that again and again and again and again and again. And that's because prophets tell the truth. Prophets say things we don't want to hear, which, which turns us to the first verse. If you'll turn with me to Malachi 1, verse 1, it says this. And we're going to try to cover all of chapter 1 tonight if we can, if we have time. Here's what it says. Uh, it's only four chapters long, this whole book. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So here's, here's what it starts at. It says, look, I'm going to bring you the word of God, and my name's Malachi. Now, guess what Malachi means? My messenger. Of all the prophets, we know the least about Malachi. That's it. He doesn't tell us anything else about him, which is an interesting thing to think about. Malachi talks a, a little bit about himself and a lot about God. Most people are the exact opposite, right? Most people, they talk a lot about themselves, right? The person who talks a lot about themselves bores everybody but themselves. Um, but most people talk a lot about themselves and very, very little or very, very cautiously about talking about God. That's what Malachi does. Malachi says, hey, I want to talk a lot about God and who he is and what he's done. And, and the key phrase there I want you to see is... Um, this phrase where he says this, uh, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So it's going to be the word of God coming to the people through Malachi. And here's what's interesting about this book, and, I, and you'll see this in the weeks to come. It's a very conversational and very confrontational book, both. And what, you're going to like the conversational part. The conversational part is he's going to say something like, hey, guys, you know, uh, you, you, you've been robbing me. And then they do what we do. What are you talking about? And they start asking questions and making excuses and doing roundabouts and trying to excuse and explain and hide and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so God says, actually, let me tell you how. And so it's this interesting conversational, God asks a question, then they ask a question, then he calls them out. And I will just say, kind of to remind us or prepare us in some ways, going into Malachi, Malachi is God's final word to the church, to the people of God in the Old Testament. And so it, it's, it's going to be 400 years of intermission. And listen, 400 years ago was 1620. 400 years ago, there wasn't toilets, running, running water, electricity, um, indoor plumbing, cars. I mean, 400 years ago is a long time, and God is about to be silent for 400 years. This is God's final word. And I'll just be honest, it's very intense, but I felt drawn to it. I think it's going to be a powerful word for us, but, it, but it's, it's, it's an intense word. This is why you'll see as soon as we get into it, and you'll certainly see next week and probably the week after that as well, you're going to start to realize why you've never heard this book preached before. Um, because there's, there's, there's a lot of hard things said because it's God's final word before we head to the New Testament. And so with that said, one last time, I want us to look at this first verse and look at a key word in it. Um, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Here's the first big idea of this. Everything in your life must start with the word of God. So, and which is a great thing to know. It's like, you know, everything in your life, your dating relationships, start with the word of God. Your business, start with the word of God. Your family, your parenting, your marriage, your hobbies, your self-care. All of it should start with the word of God. And what we see here is that word oracle 
is probably better translated, and, and, and maybe in your translation, if you have a different translation, is translated burden. And I love that because what he's saying is, guys, I've got something really hard I, want, I have to say to you. And it feels like a burden, you know, what does burden mean? Burden means something weighty, something heavy, right? Like if you say to somebody, you look burdened, what do you usually mean? Like, well, something seems that it's weighing upon you very heavily. And what's happening in the book of Malachi is he's got this message that he's like, well, it's going to be really dangerous for me to share this, and people aren't going to like it, right? Because when was the last time somebody really told you the truth about some hard area of your life? You weren't normally like afterwards, thank you, you know? Normally, it's like, well, here's what this means. I was wrong, and I need to change, and I need to repent. Malachi knows that, so he's like, you know, he doesn't, I feel this burden. And, you know, and I thought about this. It's like, you know, I really hope that, that we create together a church here where we feel the healthy burden of the Lord, the burden of the word of the Lord. Like, I, I want to know God's word. I want to live it out. I want it to convict me. I want to share with others. Like, but I'll tell you that the statistics of churches is discouraging. Barna, and, and you can really trust Barna when they do stat work. And Barna, they, they do a lot of church stuff. They just did a survey during COVID. How was Bible engagement? How was Bible engagement during COVID? Here's what they found. The worst in the history of all of their studies. Because for many people, the church is out of sight, out of mind. They're not self-feeders and self-readers of the word of God. There is no burden to know the Word of God. They said that they, they found out in the study 80% of Christians don't even pick their Bible up weekly. 20% pick it up weekly. 9% of those, or 9% pick it up um, daily. And you, know, you think about the burden of the Lord. I, I think about a story recently. I was talking to, you know, we just have some, all of you are, are interesting people. I don't know all of you as well as I know some of you. But, um, but I, you know, and that's the interesting thing about people. If you start talking to them, they're just fascinating. The things that they'll tell you and the stories that they have. And I was talking to this lady this last week, I think it was. And she was called me to share something. And she said, you know, and it just fit. You know, I guess they say your sermon sounds like the things you read and the people you talked to this week. So here you go, okay? So I, talk, so I talked to this lady and she's really nice and an older lady. And I guess when I say older, I just mean she's older than me. And, and, I, was, and I was talking to her and, um, and she said, she was telling me about the church and what it meant to her. And she said, you know, um, a while ago, we were talking about sharing our faith, and I just, I don't know if she used the word burdened, but she, it basically what I heard was, and I was burdened, and she said, and so when I, I, I kept feeling like I needed to share with my mom about Christ, she said, so I booked a flight to Houston. Just imagine, you're pay, you know, you got to imagine what that's like, right? You go to the website, and you're like, this is why I'm going to Houston. This is before COVID, but this is, she said, I'm going to go to, and she said, and I got on the plane, and I flew there, and I sat next to my mom, and she was talking to me about a couple things, and I said, Mom, that's not why I came. I have something I want to tell you. And she began to share with her mom about Christ. And she called me to basically tell me her mom recently passed away, and she was so grateful for that opportunity to share Christ with her. And the burden of the, the, burden of the word of the Lord is, I, God has said something to me, and maybe I need to sometimes bring God's word to people. Maybe it's lost people who need to hear the gospel. Maybe it's Christians who need to be challenged, comforted in some area of their life. And I want to just tell you the burden of this book, because it's the oracle or the burden of the word of the Lord from Malachi, the burden of this book, here's the book in a summary, put God first. We'll see this. Like the, this is the end of, this is their report card and scorecard for the whole end of uh, the Old Testament. And they don't get a great grade. And God's saying, oh, would you put me first? Because here's the principle, by the way, guys. The principle, and this is so good to know, especially if you're young. The principle is if you want God to bless it, put him first in it. 
That's the, it's like, well, I'd like God to bless my marriage. Really? Really? Well, then you, how does that happen? Do you sit around and watch romantic comedies? Is that how God, you know? No, no, no. The way that you God, I mean, maybe that helps a little bit, but, but, um, but, but no, the way that you, you know, the way that you're going to, to have your marriage blessed is you say, I'm, we are going to both decide to put God first in it. And this doesn't happen naturally. Like, so I've got, you know, I talk about my kids a lot. I've got a, um, eight-year-old daughter and, you know, eight going on 17, you know, it feels like sometimes. And uh, we're at the dinner table the other night and uh, I don't know how this came up exactly. And she said, I know what to look like, or I know what to look for in someone to marry. And I said, well, tell me about this, you know? And um, she, it was something like this. It was the eight-year-old version of this. And she tells me this and, and she says, you, you got to like him. And I said, yeah. And she goes, and he's got to be rich. I was like, <laughs> I was like, who told you this? You know, I would have, you know, Margie would have never married me if those were the two requirements. Um, and so, but, you know, and so basically we end up having this great conversation though, where I say, actually, well, let's talk about that. Yes, you know, you, first, you know, nowadays you've got to really spell it out. First, you need to marry a man. And then you need to marry somebody who's a Christian. And then you need to marry somebody who has the same mission and calling of you. And then you need to make sure that mission and calling can support you. You know, but that's the order. You can just see in her eight-year-old brain the lights going on. That's how you think about it. Because none of these things are naturally the way the world thinks about things. Be attracted to them and hope he and she makes lots of money is a very normal, natural way to think about things. It's just not a Bible-saturated way. It's not a God's first in my life way. And I could give you many examples. It's with dating. You know, it's like you don't want to be part of the I get emotionally and physically entangled with every person that I meet. That's kind of the world. I, I'm a part of the hookup, shackup, breakup culture. Well, that's not helpful. Instead, you've got to go, okay, well, the purpose of dating is marriage, and so here's what this looks like. So I, I have more to, to say about that, but let's just say that's the first thing he, he has a passion for. Here's the second thing. Everything in your life must be sustained by the love of God. Everything in your life must be sustained by the love of God. Verse two, I love this. This is awesome. So he's going to say some terribly hard things the rest of this book, but here's God's first word of his final word in the Old Testament. I have loved you. Isn't that awesome? I have loved you. Here, summary statement of my interaction across the book, across the 39 books of the Old Testament. Here it is. I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, that's incredible because, and I want to clarify this because we have new people and we have people watching and you can hear the same things many times and not get it, is that what makes Christianity unique is God says, first, I love you. And then in response, you love God in return. That Christianity is the only religion that says you don't have to earn my love, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, you had nothing to do with getting my love, but I'm going to say I love you. Now, we're going to see how they respond in a second, but the problem is we don't really understand love, right? And I feel like I have to do this every time I talk about certain concepts, especially, I mean, because, you know, nowadays you're going to see things everywhere. Love, love plus love, love equals love, 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 love. It's like, what does that mean? I don't know what that means, I think it means something like whatever I feel, and if you make me feel good, then, I, then you love me. And if I make you feel good, then I love you. And it's a very emotional, which is why it's so temporary, view of love. Well, let me give you what love really is. Allegiance, action, and affection. That's the best way to think about love. It's comprehensive. It's cohesive. It, 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 so lo, think about it. It's allegiance. Love's all, here, and the, by the way, the best picture of this is marriage. That's why the... the the Satan, right? When does Satan show up? Satan shows up in Genesis 3 after, right after they get married. Before they get married, he doesn't care. When they get married, he shows up. Because marriage is super important because it's a picture and parable. And it's actually the last symbol and structure we have in our society really that points back to God very clearly. 
Because what happens in, in, in a marriage is there are vows, right? What's that about? Well, commitment, allegiance. Well, then what, what after it? Actions, the giving of the rings, the sharing of the vows, the commitment of the life, the planning of the wedding and the reception. It's all the action. Then there's the affection. We live in a society that thinks love is only affection. The truth is it's allegiance with action that leads to affection, which leads to more action, all in the context of allegiance. So look what they say in, in, in response. It's what you and I would say. It's what we have said. Here's what he says. At the, um, I have loved you, says the Lord. It says this. Um, but you say, how have you loved us? In other words, they basically stop and they say, well, God, we don't really feel loved by you. Now, why didn't they feel loved by God? Well, it's helpful to know the context. Here's the context. Uh, the government was overreaching into their lives. I've heard that still happens sometimes. Um, they, they, there's, there was, they were not doing well economically. Um, they, I mean, if you read their own story, they were enslaved, and then they were exiled, and then they were released, and they were enslaved again, and then they repented, and then they didn't. And then they married foreigners, and then they didn't. And it, they have this terrible, terrible, terrible history. And, and basically what happened, it's the same reason where you would ask the question, like, God, do you love me? It's like, well, something bad happens in your life. Most people with their life, you know, they're not on their honeymoon going, God, do you love me? You know? They don't have their dream job or whatever, graduate from their dream school and go, God, do you love me? We t we, when, when do we wrestle with if God loves us? I don't know, when your circumstances change? When your health changes? When your relationships, when you find yourself that you're single still or single again? And all of a sudden, you, you, I mean, it's, it's a legitimate, I mean, it's a legitimate question that we could ask. It's like, well, God, you know, do you love me? And, and I want you to see what God says in response. He says, he says this, Malachi 1, middle of verse 2, he says this. He, so they, I love this. They say, he goes, I've loved you. And then they go, how have you loved us? And this is God's answer. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? You're like, Lord, I need more than that. Right? That's not the answer that I, that's not the answer I was looking for. Is Esau Jacob's brother? Well, part of the reason, and I'll explain all this, part of the, part of the reason is we don't know our, our Bible very well. You know, and, and kind of the under, underneath all of our thinking is movies and television and music and all the cultural kind of symbols. For, for these people, they thought very, very biblically. So he's going to go, he's going to go talk about twins. He's going to talk about Jacob and Esau. I believe the first recorded twins in the Bible, um, which is interesting. So why talk about twins? Well, why do, I don't know if you know, the scientists love to study twins. Well, well why? Because it's the closest thing you're going to get to a similar, similar nature and a similar nurture. So if there's going to be people that are very, very similar, they're going to be twins. If there's any chance that there's going to be a lot of similarity, it's going to be among twins. So God's going to bring up this, and here's what he says. And I want us to take some time and look at this. And I'm going to try to explain this the best I can. Because as soon as I read this, you're going to go, I know I've never heard this taught on before. Right, here, here's what it says. Declares the Lord, so let me read it again. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. Okay, sounds good. But Esau I have hated. It's like, all right, Lord, is this supposed to encourage me? Um, I have laid waste his hill country, and I've left his heritage to jackals and of the desert, jackals of the desert. Now, you know, we, we talked earlier in a past series about suppressing the truth and pushing things down, and 
you know, it's interesting. You come to a pastor like this and you want to go, well, hate must not mean hate. I mean, that's what you, you'll, you'll see. It's interesting to read commentaries because people will try to make words say the opposite of what they say. And it means this everywhere else, but not here. And that, that's a bad hermeneutic. That's a w- bad way to study things. Because if you loosen and unlock that part of the Bible, then you start loosening and unlocking all these other parts that you're not going to take seriously. So what does it mean, love and hate? Let's talk about it. Well, think with, think with me, like really think with me and, and look. And, and by the way, if you want more on this, and I can't get into all this. I'm already running out of time. But, um, and I've got a couple more points tonight. Um, but, uh, but basically what, what happened is it, it, Genesis 25 and Romans 9 go into this in much greater detail. And I don't have time to get into all that. But here's what's interesting. Love and hate. Now, what he means here is he loves Jacob in it, love and hate, it doesn't, nec- it doesn't mean that he hates, hates, hates Esau. He has contempt and he like, doesn't want anything to do with him. It means that in comparison to how much he loves Jacob, it looks like hate to Esau. It's the same thing that Jesus says other places. Like, where do I get that? It's where Jesus says other places, you're supposed to, if you follow me, you've got to hate your mother and father. What does he mean? Well, he doesn't hate his own mother and father. So what he means is in comparison to how much you love me, it's going to almost feel like hate toward the other people. Let me try to slow down and explain what this means. Well, let's ask this question. Does God love everybody the same? Well, if you think about it for less than five minutes, you'll probably say yes. And that's, the, that's the classic, like, American, even generic Christian answer. Yeah, God loves everyone. I mean, duh. Like, he's a big granddad, and we're all his kids, and he loves it. Oh, well, shucks. I mean, he loves everyone the same. But, it, but if you, all you have to do is read the entire Bible... I mean, that, that, makes, that would make no sense if you read all the entire Bible. God, lo- God loves um, all people in some ways and some people in all ways. God loves some people in all ways and all people in some ways. God has, and I want to unpack this and show you this, God has a unique, special, saving, selecting love for his church. And this is never to scare anyone. This is never to make people think deep philosophical questions and wrestle them. This is an incredibly comforting idea. It actually makes a lot of sense because the problem is we don't have the right presuppositions. So let me give you an idea. Here's what this means. Um, Most people think everyone's good and God's not very fair. That's like the normal way of thinking. Like everyone, you're good and I'm good. And so I don't get why God can't just have everyone, all of us just go to heaven right now because like we're all good. God's kind of unfair if certain people go to heaven and hell. That's the normal, modern man's mindset, and it's wrong. It's not at all, that thinking, you can't find that thinking anywhere in the Bible. Here's the biblical thinking. Everybody deserves hell, some people get grace. That's it. I mean, it's deeper than that, but that's a foundation. Everybody deserves hell, some people deserve grace. No, no one deserves grace, some people get grace. And so... Here's what this means. This means that this is a transforming thing. This is is the fundamental truth they have to know if they're going to live a vibrant Christian life. It's like, well, how do you live a vibrant Christian life? Realize that you deserve to be burning alive forever right now. It's like, that's how terrible your sin is. That's how dishonoring to God is. So anything above burning alive in hell forever is you're having a great day. I mean, I'm dead serious about that. I mean, that's actually how that, you want to talk about historically rooted I mean, that's how people have all, that's how Christians have always thought about their lives. All I deserve is judgment and and punishment, and I have grace. And and this is to be incredibly encouraging, and it makes a lot of sense, too. Like, God says he adopts us, right? He doesn't say we adopt him. I know a lot of, like, families that have adopted. I've never seen a situation where a kid adopts parents. 
because it doesn't work that way. The way it works is a parent adopts a son or daughter, and they learn to love in response. And this leads to a privilege mentality instead of an entitlement mentality. And why this is so important, and you know, it's like every time I talk on this, I, like, I know, you know Christians struggle with this. Some Christians struggle with this idea that, that God pursued them, that they had absolutely, that all they brought to their salvation is their sin, but it's the story of the whole Bible. It's like, what was Abraham doing in Genesis 11 before he was saved in Genesis 12? Worshiping false gods. I mean, you know, the whole idea is, even if you read the story of Jacob and Esau, basically God's like, and I'm going to choose the, the lesser one. Esau was the older of the twins. Esau was hairy. He was manly, okay? He only ate what he killed himself. I mean, he was a hunter. If you were going to build a nation, you would build one with Esau. Jacob, he wore Birkenstocks, he ate vegan. It's in the Hebrew. Um, I'm kidding, but, but the, whole, the whole idea is he was not the guy, and it's clear if you read it, he was not the type of guy you would think to build a nation with. It's like, exactly. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, write it down, look at it later, basically God says to the people, hey, listen, Israel, because sometimes people get prideful. Did God choose me? He goes, hey, guys, listen, I want to tell you why I chose you. It was because you're the worst. I chose you in spite of who you are. And that's, if you meditate on it, if you think about it for a couple minutes, you might get scared. And how does this all work? If you think about it for a lifetime, it's incredibly comforting. It says, I had nothing to do with my salvation. I responded to God's pursuit of me. It's incredibly humbling. And it also means I can't do anything to lose my salvation. Listen, if you could lose your salvation, you would. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you cannot lose your salvation. So he says, you've got to be sustained across time with the love of God. And this, here's the big idea with all this before we get lost in the sauce here. Um, is we, we um, the whole idea for the rest of this book is you have to be secure in God's love for you. That if you're not secure in what God has done for you and is in his commitment to you and in his love toward you, you'll make a bunch of foolish, sinful decisions. There was a scientific journal paper that someone sent me um, a while ago, and it was basically about um, parenting. And basically, the parent-child relationship, one of the key things, and let us remember this, especially those of us who are young parents, is for the kids to feel incredibly secure in our love. And the whole article was kind of depressing of all the effects of that doesn't happen in a child's life long term. If they don't initially feel secure in the love of their parents. Same thing with our relationship with God. Which leads to the third thing. If you'll, if you'll turn to the next uh, verse. Uh, verse 4, it says this. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So basically, he says, look, Edom is the nation that came from Esau. And he said, look, there are certain people who they don't repent, and they don't receive grace, and I'm angry with them forever. That's, I, mean, I already talked about it, That's eternal conscious torment. That, it do, I mean, it does not go well for everyone forever. And so he says this. He says, your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And then here's what it says next. Um, a son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts, you, a priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Here's the third thing. Everything in your life must be set on honoring God. So it must start with the word of God, be sustained by the love of God, and it must be set on honoring God. And you can see that. He, he shows up and he basically says, hey, a son honors his dad, a servant honors his master. He basically says this, hey guys, I'm a servant or I'm a master and I'm a father. And he wants honor, right? And honor is super important for any relationship. Although we don't, we don't live in a culture of honor at all, right? I mean, 
There's not, we don't honor government officials. We don't, we, we don't honor our parents. Uh, I mean, how many people don't honor their spouse? It's like they say, you know, terrible things about their spouse, gossip about their spouse. Um, we don't honor our friendships. That if you want a, a, a relationship to work, there needs to be honor in it. And God says, hey guys, look, I'm, I'm two things. He says, I'm a father and I'm a master. And that's important because a father is um, affection, a relationship. I'm a father. But a master is about authority, right? And God's both. He says, guys, well, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to know that I love you and honor me, put me first, respect me, fear me. And he says, it's not happening. And again, they're like, well, what do you mean it's not happening? And they're asking all these questions. And then look at verse seven. He says this, um, here's how you're not honoring me. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised, but you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame and sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? So, you know, here's what was happening. And, and this is, I think, super applicable for us. Because we might say, well, how do we dishonor the Lord? You know, we don't dishonor the Lord. You know, we're here tonight. You know, or we're watching online or we're in a community group or whatever. I do devotionals or whatever it is. So, so let's think about it. He says, well, here's what happens. It, it's basically, he's basically describing half-hearted worship. He basically says, and this is the temptation the longer you're a Christian, to go through the motions. And, and so the, the whole idea was you were supposed to bring your first, your best, and sometimes your only. That's a good way to think about, you know, how, how are you supposed to give to the Lord? Well, I want to give, you know, there's a theology of first. It's one of the reasons I, I recommend having your devotional first in the morning. There's just an, this idea of first fruits. I want to give God my first. I'd also like to give my best. And every once in a while, I give my only because that's what God does. God gave first. God gave his best, his only son, and God gave also his only son. And so God does that. So in response, that's what I'm going to do. Well, instead of doing that, they were bringing, you know, it's like God said tithe and they, you know, they drop a 20 in the plate. You know, it's one of those things where God says, hey, I want you to be generous and they keep making excuses. Here's what they do. So they, you know, the way that they would give, and, and he talks about this throughout the book, is the way that they would give is they would bring uh, animals that were their worst animals, right? So we're supposed to bring first, best, and only. And, and what they would do is they would bring their last, least, and leftovers. And this is so common. I remember that not that long ago, I was, I was with a Christian nonprofit. And they receive goods, and they, they help the poor. They do a lot of things. And I was talking to the guy, because he took me back into this warehouse, and I saw this whole warehouse area, and I saw this massive junk area. And so I started talking to him. I said, what's going on here? I said, there's junk everywhere. There's, you know, you're, you got these big trash things. And he said, you know, the sad thing is, man, he said, what most people bring us is junk. He said that what most people bring us is they're, they're, it costs us so much money every year to throw away the junk people give us. Because it's like, I mean, what's the, what's the, we don't need this anymore. It's broken. Let's give it to the student ministry. And we'll take it. Okay, thank you. We need it. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, this, and so this, I, I, another story. So I got, heard a guy was talking. He was called in to do some consulting for a church. And the church was called him in and said, um, oh, man, we're not meeting budget. And I don't know who was there, but it was deacons. And it was, you know, I don't, maybe it was pastors, maybe it was volunteers. I don't remember who it was. But this guy gets called in, and, hey, you know, we can't meet budget, we can't pay our bills, we don't know what's going on. And I heard the consultant tell the story, and he says, I got, I got there, and I looked at it and thought, well, this is strange, because based on, you know, 
the size of your church, based on the location of your church, based on the age of your church, and this shouldn't be a problem to meet this. This is a very reasonable budget. And so the, the consultant just felt led. He's got like 10 or 15 men and women around the table who are the, the budget council committee thing. And, you know, and he said, um, hey, just a question. I hope, you know, I'm, it's confidential and I'm not, you know, going to tell anyone and the details of this or anything, but just how many of you tithe? Like, because like, like, tithe means 10th. Tithe means 10% of your income. So how many of you tithe? Dead silence. He ends up finding that the leaders of the church who are calling the meeting to figure out what's going on aren't even giving, or at least giving in any kind of generous way. They were giving, in, I mean, most people give enough to ease their conscience, you know? And so, so they, were, they were giving enough there. And by the way, I, I thank God, I, I say all this because, you know, every time we talk about money, it's always like, oh, here's the pastor talking about money again. But I will tell you this, generous people don't mind when, when you talk about money. So if it bothers you when I talk about money, it might be because you're not generous. Because generous people are like, oh, praise the Lord, he's talking about money. And I love being generous. But people who, you know, it's, if money's their God, it's like, oh gosh, he's talking about my God, right? And just like you don't like it if someone says something blasphemous about your God, you know, if you say something about m money and people get mad, it's like, well, they don't like when you talk about their God, okay? You know, but, but so what ends up happening is they're, they're not giving generously to the Lord and, and in response, he's calling them out. And here's what he says next. Everything in your life must be sold out to the mission of God. So first he says, I want it to start with the word of God. He says, after that, I want it to be sustained by the love of God. That's where he said, I've loved you. He says, I want it to be about honoring me. And we'll look, it talks more about that even next week. And then finally, everything in your life should be sold out to the mission of God, ultimately. Look at, look at what he says in verse 10. And, and this, when we read these passages, they're kind of shocking to us. Look at verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. He's like, I'm looking for someone in your church to close it. To say, we're not having Sunday services anymore. To take down the website. He goes this. Who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. He says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. This is, this is humbling. Here's what, here's what God's saying. And this is, and I'll try to... Uh, Thread the, thread the needle as I talk about this. Basically, he's saying it's not always bad when a church dies. I mean, is every church that shuts down, is that a loss? No. I mean, there are. And during COVID, I mean, we're, we're trying to talk with churches. We're trying to help churches. Just so you guys know, we're, I mean, especially, I guess, even in light of, you just talk about giving and stuff. It's like, just so you guys know, and we'll find out more at the member gathering, but we are as healthy as ever. We are as strong as ever. Our budget grew this year. In the midst of COVID, our budget grew. So thank God that many of you are very, very generous. But what he's saying is there are some churches where the half-hearted worship is so terrible, everyone has forgotten the mission of God and fallen in love with the methods of God, and it's so half-hearted, everyone shows up, cup of coffee in hand, nobody sings any songs, there's no passion, there's no sacrifice, there's no giving, there's no discipleship, and it's confusing to the world and unhelpful to the Christians in there. And so God says, sometimes the best thing to do is turn that faucet off. And maybe, hopefully, a church plant goes in there or another godly church goes in there. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are churches that close down that it is a heartbreak. And that's going to happen even during COVID, and we're going to try to help them as best way as we can. But what God's saying is sometimes a church, sometimes, actually, this is actually the book of Revelation. Jesus says, Jesus says, I shut down some churches. I forget what church he says that to. But he basically says, I'll remove your light, uh, light stand, which means God sometimes comes in and goes, you're done. 
If you're going to teach that and preach that, if that's what you're going to be around about, then you're not, you're not going to exist anymore as a church because it's a confusing witness to the world. So he says, hey, that would be better that that doesn't happen. But then look at, 11, look at verse 11. He says, for from the rising of the sun. So this is in light of, hey, I need to shut down certain churches and the church isn't being generous to me. They got half-hearted worship. They're not giving. He says, here's what he goes, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. That's the missionary impulse of God. God is the first and great missionary. You have to know this. Look at this. He says, and in every place, what's God looking for? Every place. What's God's goal? Earth. What's God's goal? To reach every person in every place. And here's what it says. In every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. I love that. It's, it's almost like, look, guys, I may shut your church down. If you don't want to get on board with worshiping me, honoring me, responding to my love, and being a part of my mission, then I'll raise up somebody else. But, but what I'm doing is I'm about making my name great among the nations. And look what he says to them, verse 12. He says, but you profane it. When you say that the Lord's table is polluted and that it's and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. And then here's their excuse. Here's their excuse. And this is, by the way, what happens. This is so important. This, verse 13 is what happens when you lose sight of the mission of God and the love of God. You start saying this, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring what is taken by violence or lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? He says, basically, the sign that you've forgotten the love of God and the mission of God is you just talk about just being so tired of ministry all the time. And I want to, this is an important concept. I want to talk about the difference for a few minutes that we have left. The difference of being tired from ministry and tired of ministry. If, you know, we have a hot, I mean, welcome if you're watching online. Welcome if you're new for the first time. We have a, you know, you may have noticed it five minutes into the sermon or whatever, but we have a high commitment culture here. I mean, it's like, I heard someone say, you know, I think high commitment is the future of Christianity. No, it's actually the past. <laughs> it's the whole time. Christianity has always been a high commitment culture and a high commitment calling. And, uh, and so you, if you're going to be committed, if you're going to be committed to knowing Christ and making him known, I don't know, committed to discipling your kids, um, you know, committed to trying to reach out in some fashion or form to your neighbors and friends and family, you're going to get tired. Is it okay to be tired from ministry? Yes. Jesus Christ was tired from ministry. He took a nap. He's sleeping on the boat. He's tired from ministry. That's okay. That's why God says take a Sabbath. That's why there's healthy rhythms and routines. But then there are people who are tired of ministry. You don't have to be in vocational full-time ministry like me or something like that to be tired of ministry. And I would just say watch your heart. Usually if you're tired of ministry, that's, you know, that's when you start looking at things you shouldn't look at. That's when you start looking forward way too much to when your community group doesn't meet. You know, it, it, it's when you just, you've, compl- you've gone weeks and months and haven't shared Christ with anybody. And you just, because you're just, you're just, you're not tired from it. You're not like, I need to see a break so that I can re-engage. It's like, no, I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of serving. I'm tired of giving. I'm tired of discipling. And, and really, it's like, what do you do there? It's like, you don't just grit it up and go, I got to do it again. It's like, you know, you need to be reminded that God has loved you. 
And that's so exciting to be part of God's mission. You know, I think the number one thing that God often uses, and we can pray for this as a church, um, I think the number one thing God uses to encourage people that they would not get tired of ministry is seeing new people come to Christ. I've seen that in my own life. You know, you see someone come to faith of Christ, and all of a sudden, it's like, well, there was Sally, and Sally didn't know Christ, and Sally was a crazy college girl, and now Sally's baptized, and she's bringing her friends, and Sally actually confesses her sin to people. Unlike, you know, if you're a Christian long enough, you kind of learn how to just hide it and live with it. You know, and Sally's actually generous, and you're like, well, you don't have to be that generous, you know. And, you know, it's like, you know, and, and, you know what I'm saying? And Sally's asking questions about the Bible, and you're like, well, none of us really know what that means, but we just don't ask what it means. You, you know what I'm saying? You have, you have these new people with this new vibrant life, and so we need to continue to pray in our church for new conversions. I think another thing that, that helps us not to be tired of ministry is we need to gather together, which is what makes COVID so difficult. We need to be encouraged. We need to be challenged. We need to sing together. We need to see each other. We need to see other people follow Christ and love Christ when it's difficult for us to love Christ. And so he warns them, he said, don't be tired of ministry. It's okay to be tired from ministry. And then he, he ends with this, and it's not the most encouraging final word. There will be some encouragement in this book, but here's, here's the end of chapter one. God says this, cursed be the cheat who has, made, who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices it to the Lord, what is, and it sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. So says one thing, does something very different. Says one thing publicly, knows the Christianese, knows the right answer, and it's never the real answer of their heart. The right answer is very different than the real answer they're feeling inside. He says, and yet sacrifice to the Lord what is blemished for, and he ends with this, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. See, it's interesting. God ends with both a warning and a promise. And this is the tension of all of Scripture. The warning is that if we go on in unrepentant sin, all we have left is the curse of God upon our life. He ends with this strong curse, but then he also has this incredible promise that he is a, he says, basically God ends and goes, this is the end of chapter one. Get ready for the, for the weeks to come. This is the end of chapter one. I am a great king. It's like, it's what God's saying about himself. God's like, I am so awesome which is a great thought to end on. It's like, okay, you're, that's the summary of the, here's the summary of the Old Testament. God is awesome, you are terrible. I am terrible. That's the whole Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament, you're like, this is terrible. Exactly. The whole Old Testament, and then 400 years of silence, reminds us that, and we'll see this next week, that the priest didn't do the right thing. So God had to send a high priest, a new priest. He had to say, we had to say, wait a second, all the sacrifices were lame and weak and blemished, and so God had to send an unblemished, perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And if we would see God as a great king, if we would just have a great vision of God, it would affect and influence every area of our life. If we would see the reality of the truth that God loved us first, that God adopted us, that God pursued us, and that the entire way God summarizes the Old Testament is, I have loved you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, here's what I would say. It's interesting because God basically says at the end of chapter one, he says, you're weary of me. You snort at me. He said, you treat things as profane. Profane just means to treat something as normal or average or everyday. He basically says, 
Christian, you're getting bored with God. We get bored with that which we are familiar with. I think non-Christian, the, the unbeliever, gets bored with his or her own idols as well. Because the human heart was meant for so much more. You know, you think about people who, it's like, well, why do you need, you know, the, the new career, or the new job, or the new whatever, or the new this, or the new high? It's like, it, it, maybe you're bored with your idol. God is the only thing, the only person that at the end says, I am a great king who will satisfy your heart. Let us, as we go into the series, we're going to spend a couple more weeks in it together, let us have that conversation and, and healthy confrontation that God wanted to have with his people for their good, and now today wants to have with us as well. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Lord, you are a great king. Lord, I just ask right now, with every head bowed, that you would give us such a great view of that. I mean, the, the Bible, the Old Testament ends with such a terrible but honest picture of us. Lord, we confess our half-hearted worship and that for many of us, COVID only has made it worse. It's only confirmed us in our, in our worldliness. It's only confirmed that we don't have the value system we should and the priorities that we want. Help us, Lord. Lord, help us to see you as a great and awesome king. Help us to see that you say over our whole lives to every person who trusts in Christ, I have loved you. Lord, if we have any question of your allegiance or your action or your affection toward us, we have only one place to look, the cross of Christ. Lord, I pray for every non-Christian. The answer is, what should we do? Look to the cross. Look to what Christ has done for sinners. If we need motivation for mission, motivation for generosity, motivation for service, we need look no farther than the cross of Christ. Lord, may that be our motivation. Lord, may we be willing individually, as families, in groups, and as a church to have this con conversation and confrontation with you as you call us up through this book. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.